of the gospel, help me to um, point, uh, point the folks who are here in the direction of who Jesus is, uh, who he is in our lives, who he is in, uh, in the reality of history, who he is for those of us who are broken and lost, and, and um, just the grace and the mercy that you have for us. Uh, I praise you, Lord, for being the God of second chances, for being the God who loves us no matter what. And I pray that those who are here are here in the word today would come to know Christ more, uh, that they would come to know him intimately and personally, and, and that they would be healed and made new through uh, here, in, here in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I, all right, am having technical difficulties. So hopefully that will, I, I came in early today, actually. I was here early, early. Uh, when the sun wasn't up, I set up cameras, I s- arranged uh, uh, different pieces of equipment, I brought a computer in, I set up all of the streaming stuff so it would work perfectly, and it seems actually to be working in a fantastic way, um, except now my, uh, my handheld uh, controller for the slides that I use to keep me on track and everything else isn't working. And so here we are. Uh, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, technology will also trick, always trick you in the end. Um, I, so right now, one of the number one shows on Netflix, this is interesting to me, the whole topic of this is interesting to me, uh, is a dramatic series about the life of uh, a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you guys know who this is? Uh, some of y'all are way too young to know this, but this is a man, when I was, when I was a kid, it came out that this guy was uh, kidnapping gentlemen, or people, or whatever, uh, drugging them, uh, murdering them, and then consuming them. Uh, this is, this is bad, right? Like, when we think of bad in our culture, there is, uh, I'm going to walk around just to make you turn the camera, little girl. Uh, when you think of bad in our culture, there are varying levels, Right? But, like, can we all agree eating people, that's a taboo now, right? Still a taboo, always going to be a taboo. But here's what is interesting about him, and here's what's interesting to me about, like, the documentaries and about, like, because I've watched a few. I, our culture is weirdly obsessed with serial killers and crime and stuff like that, and I've read a bunch of theories as to why and biology and chemistry and everything else. Personally, I think it is great. I think we as a, as a species, as, a, as humanity, like looking at people who are worse than us, right? Like my car is not new, it is not nice, but I park next to that guy and my car looks pretty good, right? It's uh, I think why a lot of guys would hang out with me in high school so that girls would look at them and say, hey, <laughs> who's the... Who's the guy standing next to the troll? You know, like, <laughs> um, but when you look at this man's life story, what's really interesting to me, I read a bunch of things about this over the years, and I researched it just to confirm. Um, growing up, when he was a small child, like he went to church with his grandmother, and he read the Bible, and he prayed. And actually, later on in interviews, he would do interviews, and it would always get cut out that he struggled because he knew he was a monster. But he also knew, uh, like, that he shouldn't be. And he would struggle with his own behavior. And, like, it was kind of a brokenness to him. And I read uh, accounts from uh, chaplains in this, in this prison that he was in 
that talk about him like coming to know Jesus. And actually he was baptized about a week before he was murdered. Isn't that crazy? Like, but we don't hear that. You know why? Because we're pretty sure, and actually I, I read this from a scholar, like from, from a seminary, who said that wherever the deepest hole in hell is, Jeffrey Dahmer is definitely there no matter what. Because we like looking at people and saying, that guy is beyond redemption, right? Um, because then I can always stand higher than him on the scale, right? I can always be better. Or I can always look at that guy and say, and there are some sins we commit, or people, not we, that are committed in our culture that we look at, at those people and we say, that guy is never redeemable. Jesus cannot fix him. Nobody, you know, I just want to hate him. Right? Anybody else? Is this way out in left field or do you guys, this resonates, right? Um, we're going to be in the book of Mark again. And we're moving on from my like eight sermon series on the, uh, the, like the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, the next little section, which is the calling of Matthew. And I'm going to give you some background here. I'm going to try and work through it really fast, okay? I hope to do a deep dive where I really dig into this because it is such a fun topic. But the book of Mark so far, like the first couple of chapters up to this point, have really emphasized Jesus' authority. He has authority over demons, right? Cast them out. He has authority in his teaching. He doesn't need to lean on previous teachers or anything else. Like he is authoritative. He has authority to forgive sins, which is enormous. Like, like no one else in history has that scale. And we talked about that at length last week, right? Like Jesus has all of this authority. And he, then the last thing that happened in the previous chapter is that he healed a paralytic, right? And they, like, he forgave the guy's sins, and then he healed him, and the scribes are like, you can't forgive that guy's sins. He's like, what if I heal him? And he gets up and he walks away, and the scribes are looking at him, and they're like, oh, this guy's a blasphemer. But also, apparently, he can perform miracles. Um, And inside, at the core of who they were, they were so spiritually ill, so paralyzed that they couldn't see, they couldn't see the truth about who he was, right? They were so prideful. And so confident in their own righteousness and their own knowledge that they could not see anything beyond, beyond their own like like brokenness. Like they couldn't see they could couldn't see anything. They were blind. Um, Jesus is going to meet Matthew, and Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew, uh, also called Levi, he has two names. Levi is uh, uh, like his Jewish name, and anyway, um, not getting into that, Uh, but. He's a tax collector. Um, tax collectors in the first century in Israel were human garbage. Are you all with me? Um, I'm going to give you some scale here. Uh, actually, before we get to that, we'll do the text, okay? I forgot how I arranged this. Uh, tax collectors, where they're at in Capernaum, the, roca- the location has this major thoroughfare, right? So there are going to be tax collectors on this major thoroughfare because when goods come through, you tax them. Capernaum is right on the edge of a different district. And so when things cross district lines, you tax them. Uh, There were people who would go out and tax people in their homes. And those guys were generally higher up on the tax scale. What usually happened was you'd have one guy who put in a bid, like a contractor, right? And if he got the bid, he would pay Rome that amount and anything extra he got to keep. 
And then he would hire other guys who would work the roads and who would hang out by the docks and tax the fishermen and who would go from house to house collecting the poll taxes and everything else, right? Matthew is probably lower on the totem pole. He's not a real rich guy, but he's making a decent living. And he is taxing almost certainly transported goods, right? Um, So he's there. Like, these guys are around. They would have seen him. All of Roman taxation depended on graft, right? Like, it was a system that was set up to be corrupt. Isn't that crazy? I can't imagine a country that has a corrupt tax service that is designed that way. The, no sarcasm or joke involved. Um, but it was, it was designed on graft because you would collect a certain amount and then you would say, how much more can I get? Because that's how I get paid. Okay? And so how much you could extract from each guy. And so his neighbors hate him. Is everybody with me? They hate him because the way that, like, the guy who shows up at the convenience store in New York uh, to collect protection money, hey, this is assurance that your legs won't get broken this week. Like, I'm guessing shop owners hate that guy, right? They hate, like, the, the corrupt officials. They hate those people. And Matthew is one of them. So he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching to them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, we don't know of any other, like, what was going on. My suspicion is that Matthew may have heard the teaching from a distance. Or he may have known who Jesus was by reputation. He was not mixing with the crowd. Um, because they weren't, like, he just wasn't welcome. Um, a little bit of, a little bit of uh, uh, context regarding tax collectors. Um, most ancient Jews considered tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors, to be traitors to God himself. Okay? It's one thing to be a traitor to your nation. It's quite another thing to be a traitor to your nation and God. Right? They hate this guy. Like, probably, well, actually, and I can tell you, in the Talmud and in the various writings and teachings, tax collectors were set on the same level as thieves and murderers. Right? So, like, the Jeffrey Dahmer comparison here is not that far. Are you all with me? Like, it's just not that big of a stretch. They hated him. Um, From there, Jewish tax collectors were actually disqualified. They couldn't be judges. They could not testify in court. They were considered so untrustworthy that if they watched someone be murdered, they couldn't testify to it. Like, oh, my gosh, shepherds, by the way, fell in the same category. There are a handful of other people. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, but tax collectors land. Uh, tax pol- if you were a tax collector, you were immediately expelled from the synagogue. You were not welcome to show up at church. They would kick you out, right? You were not a part of the community then either. You were not welcome in anybody's house. No one talks to you on the street. No one touches you. Uh, in fact, actually, like their families were considered disgraced. So if Titus grew up to join the IRS, you guys would look at me and be like, Eric, you failed as a dad, right? Um, that is how he's not going to grow up to join the IRS or else. Uh, but like he, the whole family was disgraced by him. If a tax collector touched your house, walking by, it had to be ceremonially cleaned or it was considered unclean until you did so. Like, oh, wow. 
Then nobody is even touching these guys. They don't want you touching their house. Stay away. They hated these guys. Jews, like, were forbidden from accepting money from tax collectors because it was considered to be stolen money. This included beggars. So if you were begging in the street and a tax collector threw you a five, you threw it back at him. Again, think about this. This is a place where people starve to death, right? And they would rather be hungry than accept money from these guys. Last thing, the two major rabbinical houses, which are Shammai and Hillel, right? That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, they always disagree on anything. One of the rare points where they, dis- where they did agree was that it was completely morally acceptable for Jews to lie to tax collectors at any time. Think about that. Like, I cannot express to you how low these guys are. I know some of y'all lie to tax collectors. Not in our church. Some people lie to tax collectors, but no one here. Um, so, moving right along. Um, he went... Like, he's by the sea, he sees him, he says, follow me, and he rose and follow him. So the first half of this is Jesus, the Son of God, the most holy thing, like, like ever to set foot on the earth, like, like who was worshipped by angels, um, like Christ himself talked to someone about a, you know, chi- like child offender or uh, serial killer level. Are y'all, are y'all hearing me? Like, he had a conversation with him. And then he said, follow me. Now, here's the other significance to this. And, like, there's a lot going on here. I actually had not realized um, ancient rabbis, like, if they had a disciple, they di- or, like, rabbis and disciples, they did not approach disciples. A rabbi never approached someone and said, will you be my disciple? Right? So Jesus is completely backward here. Um, but follow me is, come be my disciple. That's what he's saying. Um, instead, what would happen is disciples would look at different rabbis and say, I like how that guy teaches. I don't like how that guy teaches. I'm going to ask this guy over here and see if I can become his rabbi or his disciple. And then you would go and you would ask for permission and you would spend a whole long period of time being tested in your knowledge of Torah and the, you know, like, like the, the, the spoken words, like the Talmud, and the Mishnah and all that other stuff, which you were expected to have memorized. And they would test how you interpreted and argued out those texts. So it wasn't just enough to have memorized, like, the Bible and the encyclopedia that is the Talmud. I am not exaggerating. It is an encyclopedia. You had to have it committed to memory, and then you had to be good enough at arguing about it to be accepted as a rabbi. It was an exceptionally rare honor. It was incredibly difficult to achieve. Follow me is the phrase that a rabbi would use to someone who had overcome all of these hurdles and reached the point where he was good enough to become a student. Matthew is a tax collector. He could have walked up and said, follow me, and then said, psych, gotcha. And everybody would have thought it was great because everybody hated Matthew. Right? Nobody touched Matthew. Nobody let him touch their house or they'd have to get their house washed. Follow me. So Jesus, by contrast to the standard rabbi thing, walks up to the guy who is least acceptable in the whole world who did not pass the test, who did not even ask to apply because there's no way a tax collector is getting bought in. He walked up to that man and he said, you are going to be one of my people. 
Does Matthew deserve it? No. Does Jeffrey Dahmer deserve Jesus dying for him? No. Do I deserve it? No. Do you deserve it? No. Y'all following me? Like, this story is so crazy that, like, it's almost impossible to understand it in our context. So the big idea here, Jesus demonstrates grace and the mission of the gospel by approaching Matthew at all. By ancient Jewish standards, he was a garbage person. He had nothing to offer, but Jesus chose him by grace. Grace is a gift that you cannot earn. You do not deserve it. There is nothing you can do to earn your forgiveness. You can be holy. You can be like never look at a woman lustfully. You can uh, never have like even done a bit of work on Sabbath or anything else. And you still, you can obey the law perfectly. And if you don't have Christ, that is it. You cannot earn heaven. It is a gift. And Matthew is the first instance of this insane, radical grace being offered. This is forgiveness at a whole other level. This is where the bad guy at the end of the movie doesn't get shot dead. The hero steps in and says, I'm going to take the bullet for you. Go forth and sin no more. Wow. Matthew didn't approach Jesus. Jesus approached him. Matthew was wicked. Uh, For Jews, this would have been a scandal. And as he reclined at the table in his house, Matthew's house. By the way, if Matthew touches your house or, and you have to get it ritually cleaned, now he's eating at a table in Matthew's house. What level of inappropriate is this? Right? And the way this is phrased in the Greek, by the way, so he's reclined at a table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the disciples are there. Jesus is there. I'm guessing the disciples are looking at this guy who collects taxes from them. (laughs) Right? He's taking money from these guys, and they're like, I don't want to be here. I do not want to be here. I am ashamed to be seen here. Right? It's going to come up in a second. That guy is garbage. He is not good enough for me to even eat his food. And in fact, he bought food with stolen money. Um, The way this is phrased, it is phrased in a way that implies that Jesus is hosting and everybody is present with him. Isn't that crazy? Normally, it would not be like said this way. It would talk about Matthew and all this. The way it's phrased, like it's the writer, Mark himself, like in Peter's, like said this, like he's presenting it as though these guys are at Jesus' feast, but they're at Matthew's house and they're eating Matthew's food. You know why? Because Jesus is heaping up grace he is the bread of life and they are eating it up and they are thankful for it and they're like oh my gosh someone accepts us and it's not just tax collectors it's all kinds of other sinners who even knows who else is there so the other big idea here watch this not only does jesus call matthew he eats at his home this would have been seen by the pharisees as an act of uncleanliness and he would have been associating with wicked men Um, The phrasing presents Jesus as the host. I said that. The radical nature of the gospel, like, provides the full basis for the table fellowship. This isn't Jesus being nice. This is Jesus looking at these guys and saying, I came to save you. I came to pour out my blood for you. 
I came to die for your sins, and you are okay. Come on. Receive the grace that God is offering you. And as he reclined in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is such a loaded question. Um, These guys have given up their livelihoods. They've given up their businesses. They've walked away from their homes and their families and everything else. And now these guys are coming up to the disciples, and they're kind of pressuring them. They're saying, what are you doing with this guy? Do you see that he is accepting people who are horrible? It's one of those things that you see, actually, um, if, you, if you read enough, like, Internet atheist stuff, uh, one of the big mockeries that I frequently see of, of, uh, of the gospel is that, um, you know, a, a woman might encounter her rapist who, like, turned to Christ. And the truth is that um, Christ will forgive anything. And it's not just like, oh, I'm sorry and I'm forgiven. It is, I repent. I am ashamed of myself. I am broken. I need grace. But that's a thing that, like, the world mocks. In reality, this is what we're supposed to celebrate, that the worst people, including me, including you, including the guy that ticks you off every day, in Christ they're forgiven. They don't have to buy it. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to be good enough. They don't have to be holy enough. They don't have to say enough prayers. They don't have to show up to church enough times. They don't have to do any of that stuff. They are just forgiven, and it is free. And they're pressuring him. Hey, why is he eating with human garbage? Are you really going to stand next to this guy? Are you really going to associate with that? The Pharisees and scribes are depicted as outsiders at this point, right? Because the first story is the story of the paralytic. The last story was the story of the paralytic who couldn't get in because the crowds were there listening. And all of the people surrounding Jesus were inside the building. And the, like, like the paralytic goes through anything to get to Jesus. Now the Pharisees are on the outside and they're looking and they're like, I don't want to be near that guy. Look at what kind of trash he associates with. Look at what kind of garbage that guy is, is doing. And now they're the outsiders and they are too offended by his actions to see the glory of Christ before them. They can't see it. They're unable to see it. Many years ago, when I worked at the home, we had a program for uh, boys uh, between the ages of 6 and 12 who had, uh, like, who were sex offenders. Like, that's it. They were, and you have about a dozen of them. It was an all-boy program, and they treated them. And actually, statistically, treatment of young boys like that is incredibly effective. And then after about 13 years old, there's, like, a shift where, like, things change, and then all of a sudden treatment becomes really, really ineffective. And so this is a program that is, like, ministering to these kids and healing them and providing therapy and working through their, like, like mental health stuff, like their diagnoses that these kids were given. And they were, like, they would go to church every week, every week, like clockwork. And they would attend this church. They attended it for years. And the pastor and the youth pastor knew about the story. These are sex offenders. They roped off a section. I went to church with them a bunch of times. It was so heavily supervised, it was crazy. It was actually kind of awkward how heavily supervised it was because you don't want, like, that to happen, right? 
And so they're there. They have their own roped-off section. The people are super loving and wonderful to them until someone found out. And then they showed up, and the ropes were gone. And they were told very flatly, do not ever come back here. Why? Well, people avoided lepers back then, right? Don't go near the leper. He'll make you unclean and you'll die. Don't go near, don't go near the tax collector. In fact, you can lie to him. It's funny. Today, it's, that's the reason they started that program. They said, we want to minister to the lepers of the 21st century. And so they did this. And people heard and found out and said, oh, we don't want those people here, right? I actually baptized several of those kids. Isn't that crazy? Like, I'm not saying that to brag. Like, I showed up late, and their, their staff did all the work and everything else. Like, it was amazing to, like, see these kids encounter Christ and change. And it was so glorious and wonderful. But, like, it is an easy thing for us as believers to say we do not want that here. Isn't it true? Let's watch Jeffrey Dahmer so we can mock how wicked he was. Right? In Romans, we encounter, let's see, did it go up? Yes, it did. Uh, What shall we say then? That Gentiles, so Paul is comparing Jews and Gentiles and how they become acceptable to Christ. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is the righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, when Jesus showed up, he was a stumbling block. He was a tripping point. He's like that annoying little step at the back of the room. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if, oh, everybody's done it. Um, he is the stumbling stone. Why? Because I'm good. I deserve heaven. That guy's bad. He doesn't. Everybody with me? I have done every church bake sale since forever. What has Jeffrey Dahmer done? Except for eat people. Nobody wants his bake sale items. Um, that was horrible. I am so sorry. But I was mocking Pharisees at that point. Like that attitude of, I am better than you. I deserve heaven. You don't. The thing that becomes a stumbling block, the thing that blinded the Pharisees, is if I look at myself and say, I am good, God is lucky that I'm following him, right? Then I don't need forgiveness, and I won't ask, and I won't get it. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So now, having healed a paralytic, the sick man, the doctor, Dr. Jesus heals him, right? Having encountered this, this other man, Matthew, and all of Matthew's friends, shares the gospel with him, and he cleans them and heals them. Meanwhile, the really paralyzed guys are standing outside looking in and saying, oh my goodness, can you believe the gall of that Jesus guy? Doesn't, doesn't he know how awesome I am? 
Because what is happening there is spiritual paralysis. The association of this account with the story of the paralyzed man kind of makes this obvious, right? The forgiveness of sin, the presence of religious authorities, like the parallels between the two stories, it's all on purpose. Because the Pharisees in this story are paralyzed. They're sick. They're dead spiritually. And the ones who are chasing after Jesus, who are saying, I'm broken. I screw up. And actually, like most of us find ourselves in that spot. I mean, some of us don't. But I'm guessing most of us have things that play back in our head over and over again. And we kick ourselves for over and over again. Most of us have things that keep us up at night, right? Most of us have things that we're ashamed of or things that we failed at or things that we shouldn't have done and have messed up other people's lives or people who won't talk to us anymore. People will look at us and say, you're not good enough. Like in reality, the religious authorities, they didn't have that. They thought they were good enough. They thought they were holy enough. And like the sick who needed a doctor are not in that spot. Matthew knew he was garbage, right? Of course he did. Like, I mean, everybody told him. Um, the sick needing a doctor is not limited to the obviously sick. The good people needed a doctor too. They just couldn't believe that that was possible. Um, one of the things I think about a lot because I'm crazy is cancer. You know what's awful about cancer? Like everything, right? In particular, I could have it, and I would have no idea, and I would take it with me everywhere, and eventually it would grow really, really big, and I would just die, right? Like it happens sometimes, I think. I don't know. I don't really know that much about cancer, except that WebMD has told me I've had it about 800 times now. Um, That hard heart and the pride prevented these guys from realizing they were spiritually sick. They had a spiritual cancer, and they were paralyzed and blind because of it. Their own sin, which is, I am good enough. I am better than you. I deserve this. I deserve that. I will pretend even when I'm not good enough, right? We all, like, I don't know. Maybe you all don't do that. I do it sometimes where I pretend that I got it together. Um, It's just a lie. Coming to Christ means coming with nothing. It means coming to him and saying, I don't deserve this. I am paralyzed. I am dead. I am Matthew. I judge the people around me. I gossip. I don't love Christ the way I should. I take advantage of his grace. I, I have all of these thoughts, these lustful things. I have things that I hide from my family. I got this. I got that. It means coming to Christ and saying, I got all of this and I need it. The trick is a paralyzed man or like like a spiritually dead man or a dead man, period, can't bring himself back to life, can't heal himself, right? Only Christ can. And only if we come to Christ acknowledging that truth, acknowledging the reality that we need forgiveness, that's the only way forgiveness is possible. I'm going to close with this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed to God like thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes on all that I get. Uh, Can you bump me ahead? I lost it. But... The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. My application and my challenge is to look at yourself. Right? Look at yourself. If you don't see it, sit down and read Deuteronomy. Remember when I was doing recovery and I was quitting drinking and I was like starting to make amends, I read Deuteronomy and I, I, I knew the gospel and I still was pretty sure I was going to hell. Like <laughs> because I was like, man, I, I am so falling short of God's deal. I am so falling short. I am so not good enough. I am so, so, so in trouble. But the truth is, the truth is none of us deserve it. It is this gift we get. And when we come to the place where we can realize I'm dead inside, only Christ can make me alive again. That's where it comes from. That's where it starts. This Sunday is a communion Sunday. I'm going to call my guys forward, and I'm going to get Josh to help me out with one thing real quick. Oh, I got Josh doing it. Oh, did you? Never mind, Josh. I don't, I don't need help. There is 